Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Marin Taggart, Assistant Professor of English at Sunny Buffalo, and she's the author of Riding Jane Crow, African-American Women on the American Railroad. How are you doing today, Dr.? I'm doing really great. Thank you so much. And just a small correction on my name. Uh, the first name is pronounced Mariam. Spelled like Miriam, but pronounced Mariam. Can you start by saying something about yourself and how you got interested in this project? Um, yes, I teach at SUNY Buffalo, as you mentioned, and I was doing some research at the Newberry Library in Chicago. I was planning to uh, work on a book on African-Americans, literature, and technology. And I was trying to find some information about porters and their experiences on the train. Um, So I was looking through the records of Pullman porters at the Newberry Library, which has uh, the archives of the Pullman Company. Um, And while I was looking for information on the porters, I came across this file that had the application of a woman applying to be a Pullman company maid. And I was really startled because I had never heard of this position. Um, And it just made me question, you know, why had I never heard about women working for the Pullman company within the Pullman compartment? And that question led me to think about Black women's experiences on the railroad in general. as workers, as well as as passengers. And those questions uh, sort of propelled my research. And the result is uh, writing Jane Crow. Now, you start the book off with an example of Sisters on the Reading Edge. Tell us how that story fits into your book. Yes, this was a really, uh, really intriguing case that I read about in the newspaper. Uh, Some people may have, may remember it um, because it was trending on Twitter when it happened uh, and on Facebook. Um, Sisters on the Reading Edge is a African-American woman's book club um, based in Northern California. Um, And for one of their um, events, they decided to take a trip on the Napa Valley wine train. Um, It was going to be about three hours. They would drink wine, uh, eat cheese, and have a nice dinner and be able to look at the beautiful surroundings uh, of the Napa Valley. Um, When the women boarded the train, they were seated in the back. Um, The women were accused of being loud and abusive, and employees... um, forced the women to leave the train and left them on the platform um, of one of the Napa Valley wine train stations uh, stops. Um, And so 
I start the book with that particular incident because it took place in 2015. And I was just struck by the similarities between what happened to uh, this group of Black women in 2015 and the incidents that a number of Black female intellectuals recorded in the late 19th century. And I started the book with that incident because I wanted to demonstrate how, you know, some of the issues that people like Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, Anna Julia Cooper, things that they were writing about in the late 19th century um, reappeared um, in this incident in 2015. You know, explain the spaces that you talked about in terms of where people travel, especially by race, gender. Um, Well, I talk about um, several different kinds of train compartments. Um, So on a train car in the late 19th, early 20th century, there were three compartments. Um, There was, of course, the first class train car, um, which is the space that you know, if you could afford a first-class ticket, a number of African Americans wanted to ride in a first-class car because it was um, nicely upholstered, it was cleaner, it was safer. Um, then there's a second-class car, not as expensive as the first-class car, um, and second-class cars sometimes were also the Jim Crow cars, um, the places where African Americans would sometimes be forced to sit in. Um, And then we have the third class or immigrant car. Um, And these were compartments that uh, moved immigrants um, from one location to another. Um, And the thing to know about the first class cars is that sometimes these would also be ladies only cars or cars for white women traveling alone or with a male companion. And in the late 19th century, a number of prominent uh, African-American women like Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, um, when they tried to ride in first class ladies' cars, they would be forced off. Um, And Ida B. Wells is probably one of the most well-known African-American women uh, to be forced off and sued. Um, And I look at how that first class car space the ladies' car, how that was a very significant space for Black women because of that term lady, um, a term that, you know, in the past was rarely um, applied to African-American women. So there was a deep um, symbolic uh, desire to ride in the ladies' car, as well as just, you know, pure elemental justice. Something really interesting you talk about in your book is the cross-dressing and traveling. Explain this to the audience. Well, there's an incident I talk about um, with one of my favorite slave narratives. Uh, This is William and Ellen Craft, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom, um, published in 1860. Um, Ellen Craft was a light-skinned enslaved woman her husband, William Craft, was a darker-skinned enslaved man. And they came up with this plan. Um, they decided that in order to escape to freedom, 
um, on a train, Ellen, the light-skinned woman, would pass as a white man. Um, and her husband, William, would pretend to be Ellen's slave. Um, and the one of the more fascinating parts of that narrative is when Ellen Craft is riding in these first-class cars um, and she decides to pretend that she's feeble, um, that she can't uh, use her hand uh, so that she wouldn't have to write her name in hotel registers. And a number of people are really struck by the sight of this feeble uh, white man um, being attended to by his very devoted black slave. Um, and I, I thought it was just a really fascinating um, incident that highlights how even for white women of the time, um, there were limits to their mobility, especially on a railroad. Um, and it's a really, really uh, important and fascinating slave narrative. Now, what did you learn about Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Church Drill, and Ida B. Wells and their travels as middle-class Black women on the train? Um, yes, I think all three of these women are so important for me and for the book. Um, with Anna Julia Cooper, some people may be familiar with Cooper um, because she's the person who... Um, really came up with this concept of intersectionality before it was even a term. So Cooper uh, talked about her experiences riding on a train and walking into train stations. And she notes how she very rarely gets the kind of courtesy that white traveling women receive um, when they're traveling on the train. So she makes a note about um, travel courtesy or national courtesy. Uh, and she states that the one way you can test how courteous um, people are uh, is to travel uh, in public spaces and see how uh, African-American women are treated. Cooper also came up with this um, description of walking into the train station and seeing two different signs. Uh, on one sign, she would see for ladies, meaning for white women. Uh, on another sign, she would see colored people, a waiting, a waiting space for African-Americans. And Cooper very famously wondered to herself, um, as an African-American woman, under which heading do I come? Um, so it's a really stark visual example, I think, of um, how the train stations really could give little concern for um, the travel dilemmas of African-American women. Um, so I mentioned um, that particular experience with Anna Julia Cooper. Um, and with Mary Church Terrell, uh, she wrote this really beautiful autobiography um, a Colored Woman in a White World, which is published in 1940. Uh, and Terrell, um, also a fairly light-skinned woman, uh, talked frequently about her travel difficulties, uh, both as a college student and as an adult woman. Um, Terrell also wrote this short story called Betsy's Borrowed Baby, 
uh, a really fascinating short story. Uh, unfortunately, never published, uh, but it was about a college student um, in sort of the Midwest who has to go to the South for home for the summer. And the college student is very concerned because uh, she's a Black woman, a Black female college student, and she would be forced to ride in a Jim Crow car. Uh, so the whole story is about Betsy's dilemma uh, of how she's going to try to avoid riding the Jim Crow car on her way back to her college campus in the fall. Uh, and then I mentioned Ida B. Wells, uh, who, of course, is the really rambunctious uh, intellectual activist who sued twice uh, a train company when she was forced off of a first class uh, train compartment. Now you talk about lawsuits, Sally Robinson and Jane Brown. Uh, tell us a little about those lawsuits, Professor. Um, yes, um, Jane Brown was a uh, African American woman uh, based in Corinth, Mississippi, which is in the northwestern tip. Um, I'm sorry, it may actually be in the northeastern tip, but it's in North Mississippi. Um, Jane Brown in 1879 was uh, bought a first class ticket wanted to ride in a first-class space, and the conductor forced her off and uh, was very uh, violent with, with her. Jane Brown sued, and in the course of the lawsuit, a number of the residents of Corinth, Mississippi, testified um, about Jane Brown's character. The railroad company's defense was that Jane Brown was a prostitute and that white passengers, especially white women passengers, wouldn't want to ride in the same space as a Black female prostitute. And um, the residents of Corinth, the white residents of Corinth, testified to the fact that um, although Jane Brown was a kept woman, meaning that she was the mistress of some person, of some man uh, in the town, she didn't have a promiscuous reputation. Um, so the residents were able to testify to the fact that Jane Brown in public spaces was a decent woman um, and should not have been forced off of the first class train compartment. One of the reasons why this particular lawsuit um, made the press uh, was because one of the witnesses who testified was the governor, the then governor of Mississippi. Uh, and so he testified. Uh, and some of his testimony supported Brown's case. Other elements supported the railroad's case. Um, and so I look at that particular lawsuit to demonstrate how, um, how mobility for Black women can sometimes be criminalized um, or sexualized uh, because a number of the residents, when they talked about Jane Brown's character, they would mention the fact that they would always see her around the train station. Uh, they would always see her talking to people on the train. And one reason for this is because she was selling food to train passengers. Her mother was a cook, um, had her own eating house, 
And one way to make money was to sell food to train passengers, either waiting for their train or having a brief stop uh, at the train station. Uh, And so I look at how for Black women who are very mobile or who for some reason frequent the train station area, that there is a suggestion of um, something illicit um, attached to these Black women uh, because they are perceived to be very mobile. Um, I also look at the lawsuit um, of Sally Robinson, um, and a number of the historians who may be listening right now may be familiar with Sally Robinson's name because her lawsuit was part of the um, civil rights cases of 1883. Uh, this is a really important Supreme Court case decision. Um, so Sally Robinson and her nephew uh, purchased first-class tickets. Um, they wanted to ride in the first-class train car. The conductor saw Sally Robinson, who was a very attractive Black woman, uh, traveling with the nephew who looked who was very light-skinned. The conductor looked at the two and assumed that the nephew was a white man traveling with his mistress, an African-American woman. Um, And during the court proceedings, the conductor actually stated that in his experience, white men only travel with black women for one purpose, uh, and that purpose was uh, for illicit reasons. Um, The Sally Robinson and her nephew uh, eventually told the conductor that, in fact, they were related uh, and that the nephew was, in fact, Sally Robinson's nephew. Um, But again, here uh, we have the conductor making assumptions about a Black woman's character and chastity because she's traveling with a white woman. Uh, And once again, a Black woman's mobility is sexualized and criminalized uh, because she's traveling on a train. Now, you talk about the spaces outside, like the station platform, the ticket counter, the waiting rooms. Tell us about those experiences with African-American women. Yeah, I was really interested in looking at not just the train compartment, but related travel spaces like the waiting rooms and the platforms. Uh, So we talked before about the waiting rooms with Anna Julia Cooper. Um, But in one chapter, I take a look at the train platform. And I look at a group of women located in Gordonsville, Virginia. Um, These were women known as waiter carriers. And sort of like with Jane Brown, who sold food to train passengers um, at the train station, Waiter carriers sold food to train passengers who stopped at the Gordonsville Railroad Station. Um, The waiter carriers were really well known for a variety of foods that they sold, like apple pie, their coffee, and their chicken. Uh, They were really well known for the fried chicken that they sold. Um, At one point, the waiter carriers were able to sell on the train station platform. Um, eventually, they were forced to sell on the very real, <clears throat> excuse me, the very railroad tracks. And their beautiful photographs and uh, postcards 
of the women selling on the train tracks to passengers. Um, and eventually the women are banned from selling altogether. And so I sort of look at this spatial movement from selling on the platform to selling on the train tracks to their banishment. And I make the argument that um, each movement of these women sort of despatializes them. It pushes them into increasingly precarious positions uh, until they're banished and can't sell altogether. Um, and I think the, the train station platform is a space that could be overlooked uh, in favor of uh, a space like the train compartment. But I make the argument that the platform uh, is an important communal space in several railroad towns and that it deserves to be studied as uh, a significant railroad space. Now, you also went and talked about the Pullman maids and their instruction manuals. Tell us more about that. What did you find? Oh, yes. These are the women who really sort of propelled the book. Um, so, as I mentioned, the Pullman Company also hired African-American women to work as Pullman Company maids. And I was curious about their experiences and how they may have resembled and differed from the well-known experiences of the Pullman porters. Um, the Pullman company had manuals that they created for different positions within the Pullman company. So their manuals for Pullman conductors, their manuals for Pullman porters. And at the Newberry Library, there's a very slim manual for uh, the Pullman maids. And the manual for the maids, it's really a pamphlet, uh, about a four-page pamphlet made up of 17 different rules that the Pullman maids were supposed to follow. And I thought the manual was really important because we get a sense of the racial hierarchy within this Pullman space. So one of the rules is that the conductor uh, is really the leader within the Pullman compartment space and that all employees, uh, including the maids, had to abide by the uh, decisions and rules of the conductor. And we can see how in the manual, um, how the Pullman maid uh, is placed on the lower spectrum of the hierarchy within this Pullman space. I also take a look at employee cards. Um, these were cards that the Pullman company had for the various positions within the company. Um, and on the cards for the Pullman maids, we can find a lot of valuable information like um, their names, their next of kin, their addresses. On the back of the employee cards would be infractions, um, moments where the Pullman maids didn't follow the instructions as laid out in the Pullman made manual. Uh, and I, I found the back of the cards with a list of infractions really 
uh, eye-opening because there you can sort of see um, just how uh, subjective some of the evaluations were of the women who worked as Pullman maids. So for example, um, one infraction that I saw was a maid was reprimanded because she um, was acting sulky and insubordinate. And you have to wonder how exactly did someone evaluate um, a sulky appearance? Like what, what does that look like? Uh, how does that read to um, a, a white supervisor? Um, we, you could also see elements of material objects that passengers lost. Um, this, these would be recorded on the back of the employee card um, with the assumption that somehow the maid and also the porter uh, may have been responsible for this missing object. So I, I found the employee cards really intriguing because they offered a sort of snapshot of what their experiences may have been like working with white, uh, white conductors and white male and female passengers. I thought this was very interesting. Why did they need to know about the black maids' living conditions? Yeah, this was something that startled me as well. Um, so when I was looking through the application file of the woman applying to be a Pullman maid, um, the Pullman company hired investigators who would seek out the people listed as references. And one of the questions that the reference the the investigators would ask the references was, um, you know, how do they keep their home? How do, how clean are they? Um, do they have any sort of, um, uh, addictions like alcohol addiction or gambling? And I, I think one of the reasons why they asked this question was they wanted to see how clean and neat the applicants were. Um, and there's also, uh, a concern about, you know, just how well, how, um, how clean uh, the applicants were living. So there was, to me, I, I found that very intrusive. I wouldn't want um, a potential uh, job uh, or employer to know exactly how uh, my living space looks. Uh, but yeah, I found that somewhat intrusive. And something else was interesting, too. In 1927, they asked about their cycles and pregnancies. Yeah, this was also uh, something that I saw. Well, there were reasons for it. Um, So, yeah, in 1927, the Pullman Company started to do medical examinations for maids. Um, So one reason was because uh, they discovered that some maids and porters, as well as conductors, um, had tuberculosis, TB. Um, And of course, in a very confined space as the Pullman compartment, you want to make sure your employees do not have any sort of um, medical issues that will harm the traveling public. Um, But in the file that um, explained 
why the Pullman Company wanted to do medical examinations, um, we also learned that the doctors who would do the medical examinations could ask about a woman's um, um, pregnancy and past pregnancies, um, and they could ask about her cycle, uh, which I thought was, again, uh, intrusive and really, frankly, nobody else's business. Uh, and I, I just thought that was, uh, yeah, in intrusive, I guess is the best word for it. Now, I thought this was interesting, too, when you talked about Charlotte Hawkins Brown's uh, The Correct Things to Say, to Do and Say. I, I thought, how did you weave that into your story? Well, I was really interested in etiquette manuals. Um, this is something I have a, uh, I have a strong interest in, as, as well as with my other research. Uh, Charlotte Hawkins Brown wrote this etiquette manual for her students uh, called The Correct Thing to Do and Say. And in one section, she talks about Black women traveling um, and how you should travel, the best way to travel. And she gives um, some advice, you know, don't, don't put on your makeup uh, within the train compartment. You know, make sure that you are dressed appropriately for travel. Um, I just thought it was a curious moment in which we see um, an older um, Black woman trying to instruct younger Black women about how to appear in a public space, uh, a space like the train compartment that uh, really is both public and private. And Charlotte Hawkins Brown herself um, had issues trying to ride in first-class travel spaces and uh, repeatedly sued different companies when she was forced off the uh, first-class train car. Now, you ended your book by talking about Paula Murray and her train travels. Tell us a little about that and why you brought that into your book. Yes, Polly Murray uh, is a really important, fascinating individual. Um, Polly Murray was a lawyer, a scholar, a poet, a priest, a really multidimensional individual. Um, Polly Murray was born female uh, at one period in Murray's life, uh, identified as male. Uh, and we learn um, that Murray uh, traveled usually by presenting as male. Uh, so in the book, I talk about Murray's freight car experiences, hopping freight cars, presenting as a male. Uh, Murray also had a very well-known uh, incident uh, traveling on a bus when Murray and a, a companion didn't want to move to the back of the bus. Um, and I think Murray... And I should also point out, too, that Murray is the person who really developed the term Jane Crow, uh, developed it as a legal concept. And I look at um, Jane Crow not only as a legal concept, but as a way to discuss um, 
women, black women traveling uh, in these sort of Jim Crow spaces uh, and looking at how train travel impacted African-American women. Uh, so the book concludes with uh, this discussion of Murray's freight car experiences and uh, how we see one moment of pleasure uh, of um, a Black person riding the train and finding the kind of pleasure that uh, I think is norm or traditionally found when talking about white male travelers. What is the message you want to leave your readers with once they finish your book? Well, I hope I encourage people to think more about the kind of concepts that we've used to discuss and define the American experience. So for example, um, Americans like to uh, use the term progress to discuss American culture. And one uh, example of American progress and ingenuity is the American train, the American railroad. Uh, and I'm hoping that we can sort of complicate our ideas about American progress. What does progress look like for African-American women? And why is it that with some of these large-scale conceptual uh, paradigms, why is it that so rarely do we think about the experiences of women of color, um, of African-American women, of Asian-American women, of Latino or Native American women. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, by reading the book, readers will you know, challenge and complicate the sort of American mythologies uh, that Americans like to tell about the nation uh, and its residents. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? You know, I'm still sort of working on that. It's going to probably be related to the railroad again. Um, and I'm still in the process of trying to narrow down that topic. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, and we've been talking with the author of Writing Jane Crow, African-American Women on the American Railroad. Thank you, Dr. Taggart. Thank you so much, Deidre. I really enjoyed talking with you.